Hi, everybody. This is Michelle, and once again, this podcast reflects my personal opinions, views, and interpretation of information, and was prepared in my personal capacity. This podcast does not represent any institution, corporation, association, or society, just me. Hey, farmers, I'm so glad to be talking to you again. I've been busy gathering information for today's podcast, among other things, and by the end of this one, you'll be on top of your game when it comes to skin conditions, especially those that appear on the face. The next time someone asks you about their rash, you'll think back to the Canadian farmer and save the day. One might say the Canadian farmer will help you to save face. I write my own jokes, guys. Set your expectations accordingly. Okay, what do you know about rosacea? Could you diagnose it? Do you know how many types there are and how to treat them? And if you do, listen anyway. We're going to talk about more than rosacea. And if you don't, you will in just a few minutes. First of all, rosacea is more than just flushing. It's a type of inflammatory dermatitis that usually but not always occurs on the face. The symptoms appear between age 30 and 50, like a sad puberty relapse, and assumed to be acne because it looks like red pimply rash on the face. But this is only one type of rosacea called papulopustular. Then there is erythmato-telangiectatic. This is the type that presents with redness and telangiectasia, a fancy word, which I probably pronounced incorrectly, for widened blood vessels or spider veins. This is probably the most well-known type, the flushed cheeks and red nose. The next one I would never have associated with rosacea. This type is called phimatous, and it usually affects the nose. If if you Google phimatous rosacea, I bet you'll recognize it and remember seeing someone with this form. The skin on the nose thickens and nodules can appear, making the nose look larger and misshapen. And then the last type is ocular. Ocular rosacea causes conjunctivitis and blepharitis. So for our listeners that aren't familiar with these terms, it just means pink eye and inflamed, itchy red eyelids. Sometimes what looks like dandruff can show up on the eyelids as well. If someone presented with these symptoms, rosacea would not be my first guess. But regardless of which type, the appearance is not favored, and secondary features are unpleasant as well, like burning, stinging, dryness, and swelling. Rosacea can start with intermittent flushing that becomes more persistent on the cheeks, nose, chin, forehead, and eyes. Until it's properly diagnosed, it may be attributed to other causes, like rum nose. Hmm. Apparently, the assumption was that the red nose meant you were a boozer, which of course is a complete myth. High blood pressure, sunburn or frostbite, menopause, and infection are other guesses. The true cause of rosacea could be bacterial, genetics may have a role, and it might also have something to do with the immune system. Basically, they don't know. But I can confirm, through clinical trials that I've personally conducted, it isn't because of rum. Whatever the cause, it doesn't go away. Rosacea is chronic, and for a lot of people, it's embarrassing and causes anxiety. The good news is that we have some remedies on our shelves. These treatment recommendations come from the Canadian Clinical Practice Guidelines, and the objective is to control the most bothersome of the symptoms because we haven't got much that helps with more than one. First, non-firm, gentle skin care, sun protection, and avoidance of triggers. The triggers are a big help in making the diagnosis. Here are the most reported. 
extreme temperatures of hot or cold, sun exposure, that's something that may play a bigger role this time of year, mental stress, again, lots of that lately, hot or spicy food and drinks, alcohol, and to clarify, this may be a trigger, not the cause, intense exercise, and some medications like topical steroids. Obviously, avoiding triggers is a good idea, but friends, living a life of room temperature, non-alcoholic beverages, consuming bland food in the shade isn't living, so we move on to treatment. The best drug depends on the type of rosacea you're treating. That's why I went through the four subtypes. See, I have a strategy here with my delivery. For the mild telangiectasis stasis rosacea, topicals like bromonidine are favored. Trade names are Onreltia, 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 right, or we could just say bromonidine. It narrows the blood vessels beneath the skin. We also have topical antibiotic metronidazole. They say the strength makes no difference, so the 0.75% is supposed to be just as good as the 1%. Obviously, this is based on the bacterial infection theory. And trade names for metronidazole creams are Nortate and Metrogel. And finally, we can use azaleic acid, or Phanacea is the brand name. And that's used to decrease swelling, redness, and to kill aggravating bacteria. Metronidazole and azaleic acid can also help with the papulo, I'm really struggling, papulopustular subtype, in addition to topical Invermectin, Invermectin. I-V-E-R-M-E-C-T-I-N. The brand name is Rossiver. Ivermectin is classified as an antiparasite medication and minimizes inflammatory lesions like pimples. In cases of suspected phimatous or ocular rosacea, a referral should be made and often retinoids, oral antibiotics like doxy or tetracycline or isotretinoin are required, and that's the generic name for Accutane. Flushing sometimes responds to medications used mainly for cardiac conditions, so propranolol, clonidine, and carvedilol are some options. Another reason not to assume an indication. Who would think rosacea when dispensing carvedilol? Although the condition is chronic, treatment doesn't have to be. It can be tapered after adequate improvement and revved up when triggers are abundant. Okay, that's all for rosacea. Next, we're on to dermatitis. A lot of people refer to dermatitis as eczema, which is partially true. Atopic dermatitis is a type of eczema, like contact dermatitis and seborrheic dermatitis. They are all inflammatory skin reactions. Atopic dermatitis is the worst because it usually starts in childhood and it's known to be chronic. So what does it look like? Well, at first it's invisible, just skin that's dry and itchy. But with scratching and irritation, it leads to a rash that becomes red and inflamed. Sometimes the skin will weep. Do people even use that term anymore? My mother always said this. I remember being confused about why your skin would make tears. And she always talked about creams as salves. She always referred to them as salves. Do people still say salves? Hang on a second. Okay, I just asked Suri, what is the difference between a cream and a salve? She says salves are more simple with few ingredients, usually just two, and creams have multiple ingredients. Salves stay on top of the skin because it's more waxy and creams get absorbed. Right, getting back to where we started. Atopic dermatitis. Weeping happens when inflamed skin forms vesicles that later break and drain fluid. 
Then, when the fluid dries, it forms crusts. This may be how atopic dermatitis looks by the time it gets to your pharmacy counter. So, where are the most, loca- most common locations, rather, for this to show up? Depends on your age. So, in infants, it's usually on their trunk, extensor surfaces, like the kneecap and elbow, and unfortunately, it often shows up on their faces. So, keeping nails trimmed short helps prevent major scratches in response to the itchiness. Decreasing the frequency of bathing can also help a bit. In older children, atopic dermatitis is usually found on flexor surfaces. Those are the bits that touch when a joint bends, like the back of the knee where the skin touches when your knees are bent. Look at that. In just a few minutes, we've unraveled the unknown about creams, salves, extensor, and flexor surfaces. Okay, finally, in adults, it shows up all over the place. So the scalp, face, neck, hands, chest, and down in the undercarriage, another vintage term meaning genitals. Treatment options boil down to symptom control through moisturizers and corticosteroids. Glaxobase or petrolatum, for example, will help prevent moisture loss. Topical steroids diminish the itch and the redness. Sometimes over-the-counter products are enough to manage the symptoms, like 0.5 or 1% hyderm, applying moisturizers frequently, and an application of a good emollient after bathing. That might do the trick. Antihistamines won't make any difference because histamine isn't the reason for the dermatitis, although first-generation antihistamines like Benadryl can help with sedation when the itch prevents a good night's sleep. Before prescribing treatment, it's also important to make sure that non-farm strategies are well in place, avoiding triggers like detergents and perfumes and making sure showers are short and never hot. Right, so if symptoms aren't relieved by OTC measures, prescription strength topical steroids can be considered. Flares will respond to low to medium potency steroids after a week or two, and they should be stopped or replaced by 0.5% hydrocortisone cream. My medium potency go-to is Aristocortar cream. Unless the area affected are on the face or skin folds, then low potency is best. Scalp lotions are particularly useful in seborrheic dermatitis because of the pointed applicator. It's easier to put um, in the scalp. And for dry, itchy kneecaps, ointments might be better, whereas a greasy ointment wouldn't be preferable on the face. When choosing the formulation, don't forget that when supplied as a cream versus an ointment, the exact same drug at the exact same strength can have different potencies. It helps to check on the steroid potency chart in our X-Files if you aren't sure. I have a copy taped right to the shelf where we keep our topicals so I can quickly see what I have on the shelf available and where it falls in terms of potency. With so many drug shortages, it's just a plain waste of time not to check first. In children, short-term topical steroids are sometimes required, but you may get questions about systemic absorption. The concern is understandable as steroids are known to suppress growth, among other things, But as long as the area being treated isn't large and the lowest potency agent is used for the shortest length of time possible, the risk is low and systemic absorption is minimal. Same in pregnant and nursing women. Remember though not to prescribe high potency steroids on thin skin like the face or skin folds. Alright, in a minute we'll switch gears and review allergic rhinitis as requested by a few of you, but just before... Let's quickly go over perioral dermatitis. I love this one because when you identify it correctly, it's so easy to get rid of. On the other hand, if you mistake it for atopic dermatitis and use steroids, it will get worse. 
I found this out by accident, really. I was working on a Saturday, and the father of a 12-year-old little girl came into me with pictures of his daughter. She had a red rash around her mouth. Now I know that as per perioral dermatitis, it was a typical presentation. So a rash around the mouth of tiny red bumps. The skin that bordered the lips and the nostrils wasn't affected at all, and she complained of irritation, saying that it hurt a bit. Perioral dermatitis appears most often in girls and women, and often between ages 15 to 45. This little girl was only 12, but it can occur in kids, just not as often. Understandably, she was embarrassed by the redness on her face, and her parents tried some 1% hydrocortisone cream, which made the rash worse. It was scarlet red now. As it turns out, steroid creams can be a trigger, along with makeup, fluoride toothpaste, and hormonal changes all of which were probably reasons for why this poor young girl got it. With just avoiding triggers, the rash, ex- the rash itself is self-limiting and will often clear over a couple of weeks, but she was not having it. So prescription treatment options include topical, erythromycin, clindamycin, azelaic acid, tacrolimus, and pemecrolimus. We opted for clindamycin without benzoyl peroxide, of course, because that would hurt. It comes with a foam applicator that reminds me of a bingo dauber. And what 12-year-old wouldn't want to put that on her face? After just two days, her dad reported a dramatic improvement. He said it was like day and night. And had it not responded adequately, we would have referred her, of course, for possible tetracycline antibiotics. That would be the next logical step. They are the best known treatment, and in rare instances, isotretinoin or Accutane is required. Okay, I just wanted to include that bit because our go-to for redness and swelling is always corticosteroids, and as we've just learned, sometimes they aren't the answer. Now, as promised, allergic rhinitis. This is for you, Paul. All right, this will be our lives for the next few weeks as everything blooms and blows, but unlike dermatitis, rhinitis is mediated by histamine release in response to pollens, molds, dust, pets, and other triggers, including pregnancy hormones. Anyone else turn into a mouth breather in their second trimester? Early on, allergic rhinitis shows up as clear, watery nasal discharge, sneezing, a bit of congestion, and itching of the eyes, nose, and throat. Later on, congestion becomes worse. I remember hearing about the allergic salute in pharmacy school when kids wipe up the tip of their nose unconsciously over and over again. All right, treatment for allergic rhinitis starts with avoiding exposure to allergens. So keeping windows closed, using dehumidifiers, avoiding tobacco smoke. Um, Saline rinses are also helpful to flush out the allergens, especially in kids under six because they're the only option for nasal sprays. Decongestants are not indicated for kids. Obviously, antihistamines play a role. They're the first line and second generation are preferred because they don't cause drowsiness and are dosed only once a day. Antihistamines help to relieve the itching, sneezing, and runny nose. Cetirizine and desloratadine may have some decongestant activity, but only desloratadine has the indication. It helps to take antihistamines prior to the exposure of triggers too, if possible. Decongestants will help with the plugged feeling in the sinuses, but the intranasal spray version should only be used for three to five days max. So this is like your Otrovin decongestant spray. Caution in those with uncontrolled hypertension as many allergy medications contain long-acting decongestants. These constrict blood vessels throughout the body, not just the nose. Again, decongestants should not be used in kids under six. 
Today, we have a couple of nasal steroids available without a prescription. Triamcinolone or Norcort and Fluticasone or Flonase are available for self-selection when the pharmacist is present. However, they are only recommended for people over age 18. Prescription intranasal corticosteroids are the drug of choice for mild, intermittent, or persistent rhinitis. These nasal sprays improve sneezing, itching, runny nose, and stuffy nose. You can use the steroid nasal sprays along with an oral antihistamine if you choose, which may be encouraging because of the lag time of the steroids to take effect. Um, There isn't any proof that one nasal steroid is better than another, so considering cost and coverage may be the deciding factor. This bit is important. We need our patients to understand that our gold standard intranasal steroid will only work if it gets absorbed, which isn't going to happen if their airway is obstructed. For this reason, using a decongestant spray first to open things up can be really helpful. Once the steroid starts to work, you can do away with the decongestant. Pregnant women with symptoms of rhinitis should always be referred because it may be caused by hormones and intranasal corticosteroids are not effective in this case. Intranasal ipratropium can help with runny nose, but not with congestion, and Montelukast or Singulier may be an option if the aforementioned agents aren't enough. Dosing is easy to remember for the intranasal steroids. Um, Other than beclomethasone 50, which is administered twice daily, all of the rest are dosed as two sprays once a day. Remind your patients to shake the spray first and to clear their airway with a saline or decongestant spray if required before using the steroid. Also, no need to suck the applicator into your lungs. A small sniff is enough. The goal is not to draw the spray down into the throat. Contrary to popular belief, you'll get your money's worth even if some drips back out. Maximum benefit occurs in week or maybe two, but things will start to look up within a few days. All right, my friends, that was a great recap of rosacea, atopic dermatitis, perioral dermatitis, and allergic rhinitis. I'll link some articles and some pictures on my Facebook page for you as well. And now, in the midst of all the wrong that is happening in our world today, I want you to know that your presence in our communities will continue to spread light in a very, very dark time. Thank you for your kindness, every little act, gesture, or smile. It all matters, just like each and every life matters. Take care, farmers, and we will talk again soon. Have a good one.